Art Silverman was tasked with an impossible job. How do you convince people to stop eating delicious, succulent movie popcorn? You see, the, the nonprofit group that Art worked for, a group that was dedicated to public awareness concerning nutrition, they had just recently discovered that a bag of movie popcorn, because it was cooked at the time with coconut oil, contained 37 grams of saturated fat. Now, that might not mean anything to you, but if you place that into the context that 20 grams of saturated fat a day is the normal diet for a healthy human being, 37, almost twice the amount, in one bowl of popcorn, delicious popcorn. Did I say delicious popcorn? Apparently, it's just incredibly unhealthy. And Art was tasked with the job of trying to find a creative way to raise public awareness. Now, his job was difficult, and why? Well, even the phrase, 37 grams of saturated fat, is enough to cause your eyes to glaze over. Saturated fat has zero appeal, Silverman says. It's dry. It's academic. Who cares about saturated fat? Art Silverman needed a creative way to shape this message so that people could understand how unhealthy eating that delicious popcorn really is for them. Here's the message that he ended up crafting, presented, press conference, on September 27, 1992. I'll just read it to you verbatim. He gets up, he says, a medium-sized buttered popcorn at a typical neighborhood movie theater contains more artery-clogging fat than a bacon and eggs breakfast, a Big Mac and fries for lunch, and a steak dinner with all the trimmings combined. And to drive his point home, Silverman even provided visuals. He laid out a huge buffet of greasy food for the television cameras. An entire day's worth of unhealthy eating displayed on this table. Bacon and eggs, steak, Big Mac and fries. All of that was the same amount of saturated fat that was contained in one bag of movie popcorn. Now, the story became an internet, not an internet, but an immediate sensation. CBS, NBC, ABC, CNN featured stories on this popcorn controversy. Articles ran front page of USA Today, the Los Angeles Times, the Washington Post. Even Leno and Letterman cracked jokes about fat-soaked popcorn. The idea, it stuck. Moviegoers immediately avoided popcorn. In droves, sales of movie popcorn plunged as a result. Most of the nation's biggest theater chains announced sweeping changes they would no longer make their popcorn using coconut oil. Now, last Sunday, I closed our study by examining that for any idea to tip, to spread among society, the core message behind the idea must be so memorable, it must be so catchy that, quote, it can create change and spur someone to immediate action. 
Silverman, if he had come out and said, movie popcorn's bad for you, 37 grams of saturated fat is bad for you. It would have gone in one ear, out the other. It wouldn't have changed anything. But presenting the same message in a very creative, thoughtful, catchy way, the message stuck. It spread. It produced an immediate change in society. The stickiness factor. It states that for a message to spread, there must be a certain component in the message that will remain active in the recipient's mind and deemed worthy of passing on. For an idea to stick and then spread, it has to be memorable. And it has to be so powerful that you're now inclined to tell someone else about it. You don't want to eat that popcorn, I'm telling you. The saturated fat, it's going to kill you. It's going to kill you quick. It moves you to action, a sticky message. Now this morning, we're going to see, we're going to examine why the gospel message was so sticky. We talked about this over the last couple weeks, that just like the spread of a pandemic, or a disease throughout culture or society. You need an initial carrier. We find that in Paul and Barnabas. Beyond that, what they're carrying has to be contagious. But then it has to spread. It has to catch, and then it has to move. And we're going to see what made the gospel so appealing, so radical, so sticky that someone could hear it, their life would be changed forever, and they would tell everyone else about it. Verse 13, Acts chapter 13. Now Paul, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. And your head at this point explodes because all of this seems very foreign. That's why we're presenting, as we're working our way through this first missionary journey, we're presenting the motion of the text. We have some maps to illustrate to help you wrap your brain around it. The group leaves Paphos, and they sail to Perga. Perga was a port city that was located in the region known as Pamphylia. This is all the modern-day country of Turkey, so that's your geography. Now, Luke tells us that when they arrive, Mark heads back to Jerusalem, while Paul and Barnabas then proceed to trudge 120 miles north to the city of Antioch, which is located in the region of Pisidia. Now, this is what's interesting. Student of Scripture, all of the towns that we're reading about in this area, the entire area, was known as Galatia. So later on, when Paul writes to the churches in, Gal in Galatia, or the, the letter to the Galatians, all of the churches that Paul and Barnabas are visiting, all of these towns are incorporated. They're all included. So when you read through Galatians, who is he writing to? Well, we're beginning to see the, the early manifestations of that. Now, we have to ask a question before we move from the text, and that is why Mark, John, John Mark, why he suddenly leaves this missionary journey so early into their traveling. And the clue may be found in this phrase, Paul and his party. Did, did you notice that? It's kind of a change in our travels through the book of Acts, at least more recently. Up until this point, the dynamic duo, this Batman and Robin, this Orville and Wilbur, these two men 
are listed as Barnabas and Saul. We've seen that over and over and over again. Three different places, Acts 11.30, Acts 12.25, Acts 13, verse 7. We're told Barnabas and Paul or Saul went to such and such a place. And this is significant because in the Greek, whenever there's a list, the list is presented in order of preeminence, which means early on, who is the dominant figure of the missionary journey? Barnabas and then Paul. Barnabas is taking the lead. Barnabas is the head honcho. Barnabas is in charge. But now it's changed, hasn't it? We're not even, we're not even told Barnabas is part of the group. We're just told it's Paul yeah, and the other guys and his party. And it may be that because of some of the events that took place in Paphos, you know, Paul going all Gandalf on this sorcerer and striking him with blindness, that it might have been in that moment it became clear to everyone who was really in charge, who God was really using, which I, which I think is kind of neat because Barnabas has no, no problems with it, right? Barnabas, who, who's an, an older Christian, he's been walking with Jesus longer. He's the one that has been mentoring Paul. He's the one that goes to Tarsus, pulls him off the shelf, gets him in the ministry. Barnabas recognized, wow, there's, there's an anointing on this man. And you know what? I might've been in charge, but now it's okay for it to switch. I, I might've been the leader, but I recognize what God's doing with this young man. And as a result, I'm just gonna take a secondary role. I'm gonna support him. I love that about Barnabas, but maybe Mark. Maybe Mark wasn't cool with that. Barnabas was all right, but maybe Mark had an issue. Now, why would Mark have had an issue? Well, there might be two explanations for this. One, Barnabas is family to Mark. They're cousins. Could very well be that Mark is on this missionary journey mainly because Barnabas invited him. And with this leadership change taking place, maybe Mark's a little defensive of his cousin Barnabas. Why Barnabas isn't in charge anymore? Why Barnabas isn't calling the shots? Maybe it's a family dynamic. Or it could also be that maybe, maybe Mark is still harboring some resentment towards Paul. Now, now you'd scratch your head and say, well, well how much? How would that be the case? Don't forget that Mark's mother was a woman named Mary. And Mary was an early disciple of Jesus. She owned a home there in Jerusalem. She followed Jesus. Tradition has it that Mary's home, so Mark's home, was the, the location that housed uh, Jesus, the disciples, the upper room, Passover Seder, the night he's later arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, that Mark was around all of this. Mark's own gospel references a young man that during this garden excursion where the soldiers rush in and they're arresting Peter and Peter swinging, uh, Peter swinging his sword, they're arresting the apostles, people are running, that like there's this naked boy that runs through the woods. You know, they grab his rope. Like some people think that might actually be Mark, that this guy's been a part of the story that his home would later house the first church, that it could have been the location of the day of Pentecost. My point being is if Mark has all of this history with the church, he's kind of the original church kid there in Jerusalem. Who was it that tore that church apart? It was Saul, wasn't it? That Saul wreaked havoc on this church. That Saul had been responsible for having Stephen executed. It could be that maybe Mark 
Hey, he had come to, to terms that God's grace had been extended uh, to Paul, that, that God had a work of restoration. Hey, he does join him for this journey, but maybe Mark is at a point where, hey, we can serve alongside of each other, but you know, I'm just not ready to take commands from you. And he leaves. Now, this will become chaotic in the end of Acts chapter 15 because the second missionary journey, Barnabas is wanting to bring Mark again. Paul has none of it. And we'll get, we'll get to that point. What, what is great, little spoiler alert, at the end, at the end of Paul's life, he asks that they send for him, send to him Mark, for he has need of him in the ministry. Whatever happens, whatever the dynamic was here that caused this divide, at some point it's remedied, there's some restoration, and they become friends. But at this point, Mark's like, I'm out of here. He boards a boat, he heads back to Jerusalem, these guys move north. Now, don't you kind of sense that, that the, the scene shift here is kind of dramatic? That they go from Perga to Antioch very quickly. And you know, the explanation for this movement, it, it might actually be found uh, not in our text, but somewhere else in scripture, but it's very relevant for the moment. Let me read you in Galatians 4, verses 13 through 15, that Paul writes to these believers, he says, you know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. So Paul's saying, when I first came to you, and we're reading of it, right? Antioch, going up. When I first came to you, it was because of physical infirmity. He continues, he says, in my trial, which was in the flesh, you did not despise, you did not reject, you received me as an angel of God, even Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed for I bear witness that if possible, you would have even plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Now, some scholars believe that Paul, he and Barnabas moved very quickly from the low-lying area of Perga, the coastal area, to the higher elevations of Antioch. It's about a 3,600-foot difference. And he does this in order to escape a malaria pandemic that was ravaging the region. We know this from archeology span and historians that during the first century, malaria was rampant in this part of the world. Now, based upon his own words to the Galatians, it would seem likely that this physical infirmity he references that had an effect on his eyes to the point that he told the Galatians, when I first came because of physical, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. So there's something that Paul's dealing with that's causing eye problems, which is interesting because that is a symptom of malaria fever. We'll move on. So they're there. They're in Antioch, Pisidia. Verse 14, and they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, which was customary, the rulers of the synagogue sent to Paul and Barnabas. And they said, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. It's an invitation to speak. So Paul stands up, he motions with his hand, and he says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now in Antioch, 
Paul and Barnabas, they enter the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and as was, we mentioned it last Sunday, the custom of the courtesy of the synagogue, Paul, because of his history as a Pharisee, uh, his history as a member of the Jewish ruling body, that being the Sanhedrin, the very fact that these two men come from Jerusalem, which was kind of abnormal enough, Paul is presented with the honor, the courtesy of speaking to the people who had gathered. And we're told that those who had gathered men of Israel and you who fear God, was two groups of people, Jews and Gentile seekers. Please note that this is a significant section of scripture because it is the first recorded sermon given by the apostle Paul. We know he's taught before. He spent his time a year in Antioch doing so. He taught in Damascus. He taught in Jerusalem. We know he has the gift of teaching, but this is the first recorded sermon given by Paul. And just like Peter and later Stephen, the other sermons we have recorded in the book of Acts, Paul will begin his message by setting up the context for his main point by laying out a brief history of the Jewish people and how God had worked in times past. Now, also note that these are condensed versions of sermons that probably took more time. Uh, it's intimidating as a pastor because it would take you about two and a half minutes to read through this sermon given by Paul. And if you're smart, you're thinking Paul could keep his sermon to two to three minutes. Why does that go 40 to 50 minutes? These are summaries. Think of them in some regards as the cliff notes, which saved me in high school. I never read a book. I just loved the cliff notes. Verse 17, let's dive into this sermon. <laughs> the English teacher scoffs. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. This is the story of Joseph. He's now covered the entire book of Genesis. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out. You know, the deliverance from Egypt provided through Moses. And for about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness, the wilderness wanderings. Paul's now summarized two books of the Bible, Genesis and Exodus. And when he had destroyed the seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. This is the book of Joshua, the conquest of Joshua. And after that, he gave them Judges, the book of Judges, for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. I mean, he's moving through history here. And after this, the people asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed Saul, he raised up for them David as king to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. And from this man's seed, his offspring, according to this promise, God raised up for Israel a savior, Jesus. Now notice two important points that Paul brings to their attention and kind of this quick recapping of their history. Did you see it? Everything they had experienced throughout their history had been the result of what? God's direct involvement. 
Like, look back over the section of scripture that we just read. God chose our fathers. With an uplifted arm, God brought them out. God put out with their ways in the wilderness. God destroyed the seven nations of Canaan. God distributed their land. God gave them judges. God gave them Saul. God removed Saul. God raised up for them David. God raised up for Israel's savior, Jesus. Everything they had experienced in their history had only occurred because of God's favor. And this is very much in line with the essence of Stephen's sermon. That you're blessed, not because you're descendants of Abraham, you're blessed because God chose to bless you over and over and over again. You might be, well, Moses played a role. No, God delivered them. He even chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You think you chose Saul? I gave him to you, and then I removed him, and then I gave you David. He's going through this saying, I have been involved in every part of the process, which leads to the second point of recounting this history. And that is the reality that God's involvement throughout their history had been for what purpose, what intention, what meaning? It had been to bring them Jesus, a savior. David Guzik, remarking on this passage, says that Jesus is the entire goal of their history. Well, he continues, after John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, who do, who do you think that I am? I am not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Now, we could get off track here and talk a little bit about John the Baptist and whatnot. I would encourage you to just go to the archive in the book of Mark, find some of the passages we've already discussed. John, we gotta kind of keep a good pace here and not get distracted by the essence of why Paul's now bringing John the Baptist into this equation. So he goes through this whole act of recounting their history, the Jewish people, letting them know God has always been involved and the point of that involvement has to bring you Jesus. And then as he begins to transition to presenting Jesus as this promised savior, he starts with John the Baptist. It's fascinating. But it would appear that the ministry of John the Baptist was well known in that day, even among Jewish communities, all the way up in Antioch, quite a ways from Jerusalem. People knew of John. They knew uh, that he was a prophet. They knew the essence of what he taught. They knew you know, this baptism of repentance. They were aware of his ministry and his message. And Paul now is letting them know, God has worked throughout your history to bring you Jesus. This guy, John, if you recall, let me tell you why he was here. What his point was. His point was to point you to Jesus your history, and even this last prophet who you admire, they've all existed to point their finger to this man who was coming, and his name is Christ, Jesus. Verse 26, men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voice of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now, when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. <laughs> Paul continues by explaining to his audience that while John had accepted Jesus, 
So everything was leading to Jesus, and John accepted him. The religious leaders there in Jerusalem, they rejected him. Even going so far as having him put to death. You know, in recounting these events, Paul, he's doing something very strategic, very important, and we'll see how it plays out. But he's laying the framework for how God responded to Jesus' death, why this response would be significant, and then the two reactions that people would have ultimately to Christ. And we're told, verse 30, but God. John accepted him. The religious leaders rejected him. But God raised him from the dead. And he was seen for many seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings. That promise which was made to the fathers, God has fulfilled for us, and that he raised up Jesus. But God, Paul's clear, crystal clear, that man's rejection of Jesus did nothing to diminish the reality that Jesus had been sent by God and that God had found favor in Jesus. Though Israel may have rejected him, who Jesus was, what Jesus had come to do, was only further validated when what happened? They killed him, but God raised him from the dead. Paul then explains that this incredible miracle of resurrection it was not only verified by the eyewitnesses who saw him alive. And note, Paul references them. Hey, I'm making this claim. It's a radical claim of resurrection, life after death. But there are witnesses. He points to evidence. He doesn't make a claim without validating it, without backing it up. But now he'll also verify this idea of resurrection by stating how consistent it is with what the Old Testament scriptures said all along. And you'll note that as we've been reading through it, Paul has made the point, hey, this happened, but it was fulfilled. God knew none of this was out of God's control. It was all part of his plan. They killed him, but God still raised him up. God's plan was at work. They were rejecting, but God was still working things in such a way as he saw fit. Verse 33, as it is also written, and now he quotes from the second Psalm. You are my son, today I have begotten you. And that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus. And now he quotes from Isaiah 55 verse three. I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore, he also says in another Psalm, and now he quotes from Psalm 16 verse 10. You will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers. He saw corruption. But he whom God raised up would see no corruption, saw no corruption. Now, all the Jews understood that the Messiah, this promised Savior, this promised King, would descend from the lineage of David. That it was a promise that God had given David. 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 through 17, that it would be through a son 
that it would be through someone of his heritage, of his lineage, that God would raise up to be this Messiah. This is an accepted principle, an accepted uh, bit of theology. All of those sitting in the audience would be nodding their head. Okay, we understand from David's lineage, there would be this Messiah. But now Paul does something fascinating, something that only the expert of the Old Testament would have been able to do in regards to making this leap because he builds off this understanding that the Messiah would descend from David by then explaining that the resurrection of one of these descendants would be proof or would validate that man's messiahship. So not only did God tell David from one of your seed, from uh, someone from your genealogy, from your lineage would come a savior, but the indicator of who that is would be resurrection. These are these three quotations from the passages. Therefore, verse 38, and anytime you find a therefore, the great question you should ask yourself is what is it there for? Because in the Greek, what we're doing here is he's, he's, he's building off. I've laid all of this out. I'm working myself to a conclusion. Therefore, and it's always important to just pause, look back at everything that's been happening. I'm working through it. Therefore, and Paul's very linear. He's very logical in how he lays things out. Let it be known to you that through this man, and which man in context? This being Jesus, is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, as Paul closes his sermon, he's gonna do two things. He's going to give you the good news, and he's going to give you some bad news. And he decides to start with the good news. And what's the good news? Well, it's that through this man, which man? Jesus, this promised Savior, the one sent by God, the one resurrected after death. Through this man, two incredible things are now available. And first, he says, that what's available through Jesus, forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness. Is there there a more powerful word than forgiveness? In the Greek, this word forgiveness is aphis, which means to release from bondage or imprisonment, to pardon, to provide the remission of a penalty. to to wipe the slate clean. And you know, when we think of God's forgiveness, rightfully so, many of us struggle in, in trying to wrap our minds around the essence of what this means. We, we, we kind of end up struggling with the why. Like, does God just not know me? Is that the deal? Like that he, he must not, right? For him that he would want to forgive me? Clearly, he, he, he can't know everything. What I've done, what I think, how I've treated others, my life before I came. If he knew all, how could he forget? You know, many of us struggle with the why. Like, why would God forgive me? But you know, I think the more pressing question and the question that once is first answered 
helps with the second. It's not the why. To me, it's the how. Like, how can God forgive me? Like, how is it that a just God, a holy God, a righteous God, how is it that he can forgive me of my sins and still remain just? Now, the Bible's clear that all men have sinned. That all men have fallen short of the glory of God, the standard of perfection. We are all flawed. We're all sinners. We're all lost in our trespasses. And the Bible also tells us that the result or the wages of these sins, the consequences of me falling short of this, of this godly standard is that I'm separated from God and condemned to death. Romans 6, 23. And so what this means, that I am a sinner and my sin has separated me from God and leads me to death, this means that in order for God to forgive my sin, the punishment for these sins, the wages, what the Bible might call the righteous requirements, in order for God to forgive me, the punishment for my sin must be first satisfied for God to remain righteous and just and holy. I mean, think about it. Injustice. Injustice exists where? When a crime is not duly prosecuted, according to the law, right? I mean, so much of the outcry that we saw this week in Ferguson, wherever you end up on the spectrum of, of your positions, the reason there was such a reaction was because people felt as though there was some injustice, right? We, we shrill back to injustice. We don't like injustice. We, we feel like things should be just. So think about it for a moment. You've sinned, you've fallen short. The result, the punishment is your death. That's the law. That's the result. So how can God forgive you and the debt not be satisfied? That would be unjust. You see what I'm saying? We would have a problem with that. I would have a problem with, with God just providing blanket forgiveness for the people that have hurt me. Don't you feel that way? But apply that to yourself in regards to God. You see, God just can't give a blanketed forgiveness and remain just. You see, Scripture also teaches that there are two ways that my debt or my, the consequences for my sinful decisions can be satisfied. Like there, there are two ways that my sin can be satisfied so I can be forgiven. First, I can seek to satisfy my own debt. You know, you can try to do that. But understand, if you seek to satisfy your own debt, it will take you an eternity to pay off for an imperfect payment is never able to satisfy the crime of failing to live up to perfection. See, the problem is, is that if you want to earn off this debt because you're a sinner, it will take you forever. So you can try. And God will allow you forever to try to fulfill something that you in a fallen state can never fulfill. Or there's a second option. And the second option is that my debt can be satisfied through the death of a sinless, willing substitute. 
Now, first, it'd have to be willing, or else that would be a crime in and of itself. But understand the payment for it to stick, to satisfy, that person would have to be sinless. That, that way, their death isn't paying for their own penalty, but for someone else's. You see, since this is a perfect payment, it can satisfy the crime of failing to live up to perfection with the payment being permanent and lasting. Please understand, I know that's some heavy theology and that's why we write it down and you can go back and read through it and process it on your own. But this is the point. The only reason my sin and your sin can be forgiven by God. The only way this statement made by Paul that through this man forgiveness of sins can happen, the only way that it can take place is because Jesus willingly satisfied the debt of your sin. That he satisfied the righteous requirements of your sin and my sin through his death on the cross. See, because the debt I owe has been satisfied in him, God can now forgive my sins and still remain just. Colossians 2, verses 13 and 14. You, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he, speaking of Jesus, has made alive together with him, having forgiven you of all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of the requirement that was against us. This is your debt of your sin, which was contrary to us or against us. And he has taken it out of the way that he has removed what was in the way of me receiving God's forgiveness or God's forgiveness being bestowed, having what? Nailed it to the cross. Hebrews 9 verse 26 simplifies it, that Jesus appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. You know, when you, when you wrap your mind around the how, th then you should get back to the why. Like this, this question that we consider, like why would God want to forgive me? And instead of me telling you, I'll let God tell you. Romans 5, verse 8, we're told that God demonstrated his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You, that's included in the us. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, walk in love. As Christ has also loved us and gave himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God. John 3, 16 and 17, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. John 15 verse 13, greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Why is God willing to forgive you? Why is God willing to sacrifice his own son so that he can forgive you? Why? It's because he loves you. You can debate it all day long. Well, why would he love me? I don't know. I know you. I'm not quite sure. Why would he love me? I'm also perplexed. 
It is a mystery. But it's still there. And it's still real. It's still the reality. You might not be able to forgive yourself. But the irony, that doesn't matter. Because God is. There's another thing that comes as a result of this man. Forgiveness of sins and, look at it, justification before God. Paul says, by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things. Understand justification. It's a Christian word, understood. We, do, we use it more in church than anywhere else. Unless you like FX's show, Justified. But that's the only place in pop culture that I can find it. Justification, it's more than forgiveness, which is kind of cool. Think about it this way. While forgiveness through Jesus may pave the way for the debt of sin to be forgiven, justification by Jesus places his right standing, his reputation, his position before God. We call that righteousness the righteousness of God, the right standing before God onto my account. So forgiveness wipes my, my slate clean. But if it was just forgiveness, then I got nothing. But that's good because I had a debt. But not only is my, my slate wiped clean, but then the righteousness of Jesus is given to me. Like not only can I, I go before God, but I'm going before God with the standing of Jesus, the position of Jesus, the son in whom he loved. This word justified in the Greek, it means to render one righteous or right. In a very real sense, to be justified by God is to be seen by God just as if I'd never sinned. It's an easy way of remembering the meaning of this word justified. To be seen by God just as if I'd never sinned. Think about that for a moment. Think about the sin. You know, when you think about that sin, if you're in Christ through this man, God doesn't think about it. It's actually been wiped clean. That that standing is not on your behalf. Like, realize, the fact that we're justified by Jesus, it means that I will never be more prepared for the halls of heaven than I am right now process that. This means that there's nothing that you can do that will add to your standing before God. You've, you've been given the righteousness of God. You can't do anything to add to it, like to earn brownie points. There are no more points to be earned. And then there's also nothing you can do to take away that standing. There's nothing I can do to earn it more, and there's nothing I can do to to deserve it less. I've been forgiven and made right. Romans 5, verses 18 through 19, therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, speaking of Adam, resulting in condemnation, even so through one man's righteous act, that being Jesus, the free gift, that salvation, came to all men, resulting, producing, yielding, justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, we were made sinners. Also by one man's obedience, that being 
going to the cross, we are made righteous. <laughs> now, why was receiving forgiveness of sins and justification through Jesus so pressing, like so relevant to the audience? Let's get back into our scene. Well, Paul answers this hypothetical question by kind of dropping a theological bomb in this synagogue full of religious Jews and seeking Gentiles. He says, through this man, forgiveness of sins, justification. And why is that important? Well, well, you can't be justified by the law of Moses. <laughs> like, you gotta understand what that's like. Like, that would be like me walking into a mosque and telling a congregation of very devout, fanatical Muslims that the five pillars of faith will not make you right with Allah. Or, or it would be like going to a Greenpeace rally and saying, despite all your conservational efforts, God's still gonna burn this baby. It's gonna be burned to the ground. Like that's just a message that doesn't sit well with the audience because it, it, it targets everything I'm fundamentally about, right? All of my energy, all my effort, everything I'm doing. I'm trying to save the planet. That's cool, the planet's gonna burn. I'm trying to earn God, uh, you know, Allah's favor. That's cool, it ain't gonna work. Like Paul just ba-boom drops the bomb in the synagogue. You see, he's explaining why Jesus as savior is so important. And that is because the entire system these people trusted to provide forgiveness and justification was ill-equipped to do so. Paul is telling them that the law of Moses was designed to reveal a man's sin and that it had no power to cleanse a man of his sin. This is a constant theme that Paul will bring up through his writings. Same with justification. By the way, that's the first time Paul mentions justification in scripture, and he will write extensively on that idea, that concept. But in Galatians 3, verse 25, Paul says, therefore the law, it was our tutor to bring us to Christ, that we might be justified not through the law, works, my effort, my energy, my effort, but by faith. But after faith has come, <laughs> we don't need the tutor or the law. Romans 3.20, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in God's sight, for by the law, simply the knowledge of sin. Case in point, the speed limit, that speed limit sign exists to let you know how bad you're speeding. I've never seen a speed limit sign make a person drive the speed limit. It's not like you're driving and that speed limit sign jumps into the car and says, slow it down. It just lets you know, it's just there, it's a, it's a sign. Wow, I'm going slow, I'm really going fast. It just lets me know how I'm going. That's what the law did. It produced the knowledge of sin. Galatians 2 verse 21, he says, <laughs> Paul says, I don't set aside the grace of God for if righteousness could come by the law, then Christ would have died in vain. It's heavy. Good news. Forgiveness, justification. Now, the bad news. Verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. And now he'll quote from Habakkuk 1, verses 5. He says, Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Beware, therefore. That's a heavy transition. You know, it's a truth 
that when God offers such a precious gift, that gift being forgiveness and justification, the rejection of that gift will be met with consequence. Paul's clear that despisers who reject Jesus, who reject his gift, the gift his death provides, would what? Would perish. Now, in quoting from Habakkuk, this, this contemporary of Jeremiah and Zephaniah, who, who was in Jerusalem prophesying as the Babylonian armies are descending upon the land, and quoting from this prophet, Paul is reminding an audience familiar with Habakkuk that in the face of a rebellious people, the judgment of God is unavoidable. Paul continues by just stating a blunt reality that while God would work in your days and in ours, there would be a contingency of people who would still by no means believe. Though salvation through Jesus is available to all men, it's a simple truth. And it's bad news that some men will still reject it. Now look at the response of Paul's message, and we're almost done. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. You gotta like, that's a good message. When those people would be like, I want the same message two weeks in a row, you're nailing it. Now, when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews, devout proselytes, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. Now, while Luke tells us that many of the Jews followed Paul and Barnabas, it's clear from the text that the, that the overwhelming response existed among Gentiles who begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now, next Sunday, we'll see the, the ultimate effects of this sermon because when Paul and Barnabas go to the Sabbath, uh, go to the synagogue the next Sabbath, we're told the entire town. In the course of a week, word spreads and the entire town shows up to hear the same message, which means, right, that something of which Paul sang, it did what? It stuck. It was powerful. It created an immediate response because they followed Paul and Barnabas and it was so meaningful and memorable that they took it and did what? They told everyone because the whole town showed up next. So what was it? And this is how we'll close our, our study this morning. What was it that made this message so sticky? I think the answer is found in the last nine words that we read. That Paul and Barnabas persuaded them to continue in the law. No. In the grace of God. You know what the core message, the revolutionary idea, the, the one concept that these men brought into the world that changed the world forever, it was the grace of God. This phrase, the grace of God, it means the unmerited favor of God provided independent of our involvement. It means it's given, it's not earned. You know, it's a beautiful reality that not only is your salvation, forgiveness and justification, a gift given by God by grace through faith, but your present relationship with God and eternal standing before God are also based in God's grace and not your performance. Do you understand how awesome that is? Like the idea of God's grace was so revolutionary to everyone that heard it. 
because it was foreign to the Jew or the Greek. The idea that I could be given God's favor, I didn't have to earn God's favor, it resonated. Because of this man's work, I can be forgiven and I can be restored and I can be set free. And this is something I can live in and abide in and enjoy. But you know what's sad? Is that so many people still want to be justified by their own actions. It's the only thing religion affords. One guy, he said it well. He said, grace, grace doesn't sell. You can hardly give it away because it only works for losers and no one wants to stand in that line. Do you realize that that's the core component that unlocks the grace of God? The minutes, the, the, the realization, I can't do it. Like, like, I can't make God pleased with me. I can't earn God's forgiveness. I can't earn God's favor. No amount of my energy will ever save me. As a matter of fact, the best it'll get me is hell, which stinks. You see, you have to come to the realization that me, myself, and I, that holy trinity, is condemned. And that as a result, I come to Jesus with nothing because he has everything. Like, I pray you realize, you know, they continue in this grace. I pray you realize this morning that your entire spiritual existence is born in grace, grown through grace, and reaches maturity by grace. And you know why the grace of God is so contagious? If you meet a person who's born in grace, living in grace, maturing in grace, you know what that person oozes? The grace of God. And that, my friend, is very contagious. When you can go to someone and say, hey, you're working real hard to be good and you're not really doing a good job at it, but let me tell you about Jesus. Like what he offers, and it's free, and, and it's incredible, and it's changed my life. That, you know, you can tell someone who's still trying to earn God's favor because you know what they ooze? They might be saved by God's grace, but they're oozing God's law. And they're a jerk and they're legalistic. It's not the law that brings a man to repentance. The Bible tells us it's God's goodness. Friend, you can be forgiven. It doesn't matter what you've done. Your slate can be wiped clean and God's righteousness can be placed on your account. And there's nothing you can do to earn more of it or lose any of it. It's a free gift. And so, Father, we just let that settle into our heart.